Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jiggs Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. It's just chock full of funk goodness, cover to cover, goodness gracious. Whether you're watching to our video version on YouTube or at funkinstuff.net, where there's also some uh, on Vimeo, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Also, whether you're listening to the audio podcast version on iTunes and other leading providers, thank you to you as well. So appreciate the support. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to Truth and Rhythm. It lives on the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube. Need that support? Tell friends, tell family. I'll remind you again before we're done. This episode features one of the leading funk, soul, and jazz session keyboardists, composers, and arrangers of the 1970s and 1980s, Mr. Philip Wu. Wu was also a band member of Roy Ayers Ubiquity and Frankie Beverly and Mays. A child prodigy hailing from Seattle, by the time he reached high school, Wu was a local funk band fixture, including being in a group that also featured a teenage Kenny G. That was until Ayers came to town and took him away to New York at age 19 to join the funk jazz legends touring and studio band. Wu became immersed in a rich Manhattan music scene in which funk, soul, and jazz stars were playing a recording somewhere locally every day of the week. A couple of years later, Wu struck out on his own and wound up doing extensive session and performance work with Ashford and Simpson, Candy Staten, Patti LaBelle, Grand Central Station's Patrice Chocolate Banks, who has been on the show as well, and later on Grover Washington Jr., George Howard, Jeffrey Hosborn, Gladys Knight, Deborah Harry, Cindy Lauper, Roberta Flack, Angela Bofield, Phyllis Hyman, Whitney Houston, and the Four Tops, among many others. In 1980, Wu joined Mays and his feature on that group's Live in New Orleans, We Are One, and Back to Basics albums. In the late 1990s, Wu relocated to Tokyo, where he has resided ever since and where he comes to us for the show. There, he continues to work constantly in a variety of musical capacities that includes joining groups like Tower of Power when they tour Asia and playing local club gigs weekly with a crack band covering the gamut of well-known and obscure soul funk and jazz songs. Here, Wu reflects on his 45 years in the business and shares lots of unforgettable memories and accomplishments that include name-dropping, the several dozen legends and stellar musicians he has had the thrill of crossing paths with along his amazing journey. Stick around until near the end when he breaks out a bunch of terrific photos. I'm not sure this is what he had in mind when he coined the phrase, but as another famous keyboardist used to say, and I'm talking about Parliament Funkadelic's Bernie Worrell here, we all need woo. And this interview sure is having you saying woohoo. With that, here's Philip Wu. Hey, I'm so pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Rocket Ship, accomplished keyboardist, composer, and producer who has worked with dozens of funk, jazz, and R&B greats that include Roy Ayers and Mays. I'm welcoming Mr. Philip Wu. Philip, how are you? Welcome. Hello, everybody out there in funky land. I'm happy to be here. All the way from Tokyo. This is a, uh, a truth and rhythm first. It is the first broadcast from Tokyo. Well, I'm honored to represent, you know, my my new hometown. Um, I'm not Japanese. I'm Chinese, but this is my adopted town now. Yeah. So uh, thank you for taking the time. It took us a while to get this together, but I'm so glad we could finally connect. You are certainly so busy with your different projects and session work and live performance. So that's a good thing, but I'm glad we could finally carve out a little bit of time. My pleasure. So now you're in Tokyo, but as I understand it, 
you started out in Seattle or in New York, then made your way to Tokyo. Could you walk us through how you first got into music and why you made those moves? Um, I started out um, as a child. Um, I started playing piano when I was five. And um, my teacher used to hit me, so I quit. And uh, around when I was about seven, I started playing by ear. And then I would copy um, the British groups. Um, my favorites were the Animals, Dave Clark Five, the Beatles, Yardbirds, and uh, groups like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then after, um, and of course, we all listened to soul music. James Brown, Stevie Wonder, Aretha Franklin, that was out at the same time. And then, of course, Motown. And so I'm the youngest of five, so everybody else was collecting records, and all our friends were collecting records. So there was a lot of music around. And my mother was a pianist, and she had, um, she had all of Dinah Washington's and Harry Belafonte's albums. And she also had all of the popular Broadway soundtrack albums. Mm -hmm. And my uncle was a jazz buff. And my aunt was the secretary of the local jazz society. And my grandfather was an opera classical buff. So there was a lot of music around when I was a kid. And when did you decide that this is what you wanted to do with your life? When I was seven. Seven. Yeah, when I saw the Dave Clark Five on um, Ed Sullivan, and I saw the guy playing the little Farfisa, I said, "I, I want to do that. That's what I want to do." And uh, after um, I saw Stevie Winwood playing the B three, and then seeing the Young Rascals and the guys with the B threes, I was like, "I want to, I want to play B three and um, so when I was 12, um, my sister, on my 12th birthday, my sister took me to the local hippie um, auditorium, Eagles Auditorium, to see the Paul Butterfield Blues Band. Mm -hmm. And um, that changed my life. And I saw Paul Butterfield playing harmonica, and I was like, I, I want to do that too. I want to play harmonica. So I started playing blues harp when I was 12. And then that year going into junior high school, um, I met some other kids my age who were uh, junior hippies. And um, so we started going to Eagles every weekend. And I saw um, Muddy Waters, Buddy Miles, Cold Blood, Chicago, B.B. King, Albert King, Freddie King, Taj Mahal, Steve Miller Band. Jethro Tull Spirit, Joe Cocker. I mean, on and on. We went every week to the concerts. And uh, and then we started jamming. We had a little garage band and uh, and we would play blues. And so that's that's how the band thing started when when I was 12. Did you um, like have perfect pitch or anything like that? Or did you just have a, a gift for for you know playing yes i had an ear for music since i was since i was about seven mm -hmm. and uh, another thing is that um the kids would show each other songs so when like groovin came out uh, in the piano room at school before the teacher showed up everybody would show each other how to play groovin and uh uh, in the lunchroom, Sly and the Family Stone would be playing, and they would play the same record over and over again. And in the art class, it was Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and they would play that record over and over again. And uh, there were local bands already at the time who, who they were, you know, maybe 15 or 16 years old, excellent bands. So I grew up in the central district of Seattle, which is the black neighborhood. And uh, there were bands all over the place. Um, 
the clubs would run five, six nights a week, and the bands would play. They would rotate the clubs and play every night. And so we're, there were bands practicing all over the neighborhood. I mean, if you walked, I walked a mile to junior high school, and I would pass two or three houses where bands were practicing, uh, from jazz to soul bands, and mostly funk soul bands. Well, so I, I, had no, I had no idea that Seattle was such a hotbed for you know R&B and funk, but you know it rains so much there. I'm thinking you know that kind of encourages staying inside and getting into music. Uh, the rain does not stop Seattle people from going outside, mm. and uh, we don't carry umbrellas. You just get wet. <laughs> so uh, that that was just a fact of life that it rained all the time. And um, what people don't know about Seattle is that Seattle was a, a big party town. And the reason for that was um, uh, in those days, the, um, the governor was kind of a mafioso. And his name was Rosalini. And so he allowed um, like a lot of gambling, prostitution, and after hours nightclubs. And there was a strip um, called Jackson Street. And there is a book called uh, Jackson Street something about the, the history of R&B in Seattle. And so um, Quincy Jones, Ray Charles, uh, Ernestine Anderson, and dozens of others, Clark Terry, they all play that circuit. And uh, Quincy and Ray Charles were running buddies. And uh, did you know Ray Charles lived in Seattle? I did not. Yes. So uh, when he when he got out of the South, he moved to Seattle. And there was there were lots of clubs. You know, Coltrane, Miles, everybody used to play in in those clubs. Um, the Black and Tan, the Checkmate, and um, there were dozens of clubs, and they would run five nights a week. So, so there was, I'm learning something here, Philip. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a big R&B scene in Seattle, and it was on the circuit, on the Chitlin circuit. Mm -hmm. So all the bands would come through, and the local bands were very top-notch bands. Um, but one fact is they never got signed because they would not send the record scouts to Seattle. So Seattle was considered almost like Alaska because it's so far away from everywhere else. You know, you had to drive 14 hours to get to um, San Francisco, and that was the first major city um, besides Portland, but Portland was pretty much Alaska too. Then if you drove east, the next city was Chicago. Yeah. Well, That'll take you two days to get there. So pretty much the opportunities to leave Seattle was very difficult for a musician. See, I always think, when I think of Seattle back then, I think of Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, Jimi um, is from my neighborhood, and um, I jammed with his cousin, and uh, he went, we went to the same junior high school and high school, which also, um, Garfield High School. Quincy Jones went to that high school. My aunt was his classmate. And um, Bruce Lee went to Garfield too. Hmm. And Bruce Lee's family was very close to my family. But um, I was, I met him, but I was too young to remember. I must have been two or three years old. Wow. So uh, that's a bit of um, Seattle Central District history. See, I've been to Seattle, uh, but I, I had no idea about that uh, deep music history there. Um, so what made you leave there for, did New York seem like greener pastures or what happened? Well, I, um, I was in a funk band um, um, and the, the sax player was Kenny G. Oh, Jeff Lorber Fusion. Yeah. And uh, this is the band. 
Cole, bold, and together. All right. So you can see Kenny there. Yeah. And um, so we had out some local records. We had a number one record on the, on the Soul Station. And we were working five nights a week. And suddenly in 1975, disco came on the scene. And so almost overnight, the club started closing and getting DJs. And so at that time, the hustle came out, get up and boogie, fly, Robin, fly, doing anything you want to, um, brass construction. So everything started going to dance. And uh, so all of the gigs disappeared. And so I was in college, my first year of college. And um, I happened there was a local jazz club called the Pioneer Bank that all of the, the jazz people of that day would, would come to. And that was like a Freddie Hubbard, Grover Washington, uh, Stanley Tarantine, George Benson. So we would go every week to see that because I, I was a CTI freak, CTI label freak, and Roy Ayers. And I met Roy Ayers when I was still in high school, when I was 17. And he was at a club called The Gallery. And when I went there with my girlfriend, and there were like 10 people in the club. And so he was joking about that, about how it was an empty house. And, you know, he's a real funny guy. And he said, does anybody out there want to sit in? And so I raised my hand. And then he said, come on up. And I went up and I sat in with Roy Ayers. And then... We hung out, you know, the rest of the night, and I met all the guys. Were you nervous? What's that? Were you nervous? Oh, no. Mm -hmm. No, it was, you know, that was what what I was into. It was just, it was funk and soul. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't playing jazz. Mm -hmm. It was play. that was Virgo Red at that time, and everything was funk and soul. And at that time, all the jazz artists were playing what was known as jazz funk because straight ahead jazz had long been not um, sellable or hearable on the radio. So when you heard Freddie Hubbard or George Benson or Stanley Turrentine, it was, it was called soul jazz or jazz funk at that time. And so I met all the guys, Dennis Davis was in the band Harry Whitaker, um, John O'Farrell was playing percussion. And um, so fast forward two years later, I'm 19, and I go into the club to see Roy Ayers, and he walks by me and says, hey, I know you. Um, Want to come up and play? And it's like, yeah. And he had just fired Harry. So he had a whole full set of keyboards on stage. And, but he was jumping back and forth from the vibes and the keyboards. So he didn't have a keyboard player. And then he asked me, um, do you know any of my music? And I said, I know all of your music. <laughs> and um, so I got up there and I played Mystic Voyage. And, um, you know, and I didn't make any mistakes. And then he said, oh, come back tomorrow night. And so I went back, and he just kept saying, come back tomorrow night. So I played the whole week with them, and I would just play longer and longer and longer. And then they took off and came, came back for a second round two weeks later. So I played the whole week with them. And every day he would say, uh, come, by to, come by the club tomorrow at 4 o'clock for rehearsal. But they never showed up for rehearsal. And um, because after the gig, they will go party and then sleep all day. And so um, one day he called me up and he said, come down to the club. And I met him at the club and he said, I need you to make a chart for me because I want to record this song. And so I said, okay. And he played the song. It was Gino Vanelli's Keep on Walking. Hmm. And so I made him a chart. You know, I figured out what the chords were. It made him a chart. And then um, 
he said, let's play. He said, can you swing? And I said, yeah, I can swing. I was in a, in a high school big band and a local big band by uh, the trumpeter Floyd Stanifer, who was a famous local trumpeter. And so I, I could play straight ahead jazz. And then, um, then he said, um, how would you like to move to New York and join my band? And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> so um, he said, um, go home and I'll send you a plane ticket. And so I waited three months and he sent me a plane ticket. And that was my first plane ride. And the first gig was in Chicago. And the, so, so you, that, flew to, you flew to New York, but then you quickly had to travel to Chicago? No, no, I didn't go to New York. I went straight out on the road. Okay. So we didn't get to New York until after the Chicago thing was over. And, uh, uh, Philip, when, when you started sitting in with, with Roy Ayers, um, did you have anything else also going at the time, or were you kind of just free at that point? I was going to school and playing with, with Copeland together. But by that time, we were not playing five nights a week anymore. So um, at, for a time with Copeland together, we would, we would do club stretches and play five nights a week at alternating different clubs or play on the weekends, uh, do special events, high school dances, stuff like that. How, how much were you doing some original material or mostly covers or? We were doing some original material. You know, we were writing songs. And um, when the band heard that uh, I got the offer, they all showed up at my house and they begged me not to leave. And they're like, we're going to make it, you know, we're going to get, we're going to get famous. We're going to be the next earth on the fire. And then, and I was like, sorry, fellas, I got to go. So did anyone else from that group uh, go further besides Kenny G? Um, no, but Kenny, you know, Kenny pretty much became a superstar. In fact, I just played with Kenny last, um, Two months ago, I was I was supposed to do the the Japan tour because Robert um, is going to get rotator cuff surgery, but he ended up not having to do it. So I just went and hung out and sat in with, with my old friend Kenny G. I, I knew he, I knew he had some funk history with Jeff Lorber Fusion when they first started out, but I didn't know it went beyond that. So very interesting. Well, Kenny in high school was a Grover Washington freak. Ah, and, um, love Grover. And also a Charlie Parker freak. And he he took the first chair of the big band. And our high school big band was number one in the nation on the West Coast. It was divided into two, two coasts. So um, my high school band won number one four years in a row. So we had a we had a great arranger named Jim Gardner, who was kind of a Quincy Jones, and um, we had a great big band. But I quit in the middle of senior year to go pro, and I started playing in clubs five nights a week when I was still in high school. So that was that was pretty much my education, is is playing in in bands. And so that gave me kind of the balls to hold to hold my own once I got out into the the national scene. So do you remember what was it like playing that Chicago show, your first show with Roy? Oh, it was, that was amazing because right after soundcheck, I walked past the bar and Kenny Burrell is sitting there. And he greets me and he says, hey, how are you doing? And he says, I've never seen a Chinese piano player before. And uh, and that was cool. And he was super friendly. And of course I knew who Kenny Burrell was. And then, um, so we, um, we're playing 
the uh, first set, and this lady walks on stage and grabs the mic. And then the, um, the, the security guy was running out there to snatch her off the stage, and the bass player was Byron Miller. And, uh, and he said, no, no, that's Flora Purim. <laughs> and so Flora sang. And then um, this local guy came and sat in, and it was Steve Cobb. And uh, Steve Cobb uh, at that time was Ramsey Lewis's drummer. And he played with Phil Upchurch, and um, he was very close to the Earth, Wind, and Fire camp, and an excellent drummer. He's he later joined the band, and he's on a lot of the recordings. An excellent Chicago drummer. And then I went up after the show was over. I was the first one into the dressing room, and Donnie Hathaway was sitting there, nice. and I was like flabbergasted, right? And I was stuttering, you know, because Donny Hathaway was my idol. Like I I had been copying Donny Hathaway since I was 13 years old. And uh, so I was telling him how much I really loved his, his art. And he says, oh, it's all in the cosmos. <laughs> So that was my that was my bit of wisdom from Donny Hathaway. But for the first time to leave home and you know, first day I rode an airplane, that was pretty awesome. You must have been floating on air. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was that was the life changing that was the event that changed my life is being able to get out of Seattle because otherwise you know, I could, I, I would probably still be there now. And that was '76. Uh, Is that the right year? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that's right at the like peak. I mean, Roy Ayers was at the height of his popularity, but also just that genre, you know, of like funk jazz and soul jazz was like at its peak. You know, so I mean, that's the golden era right there. And you're right in the thick of it all of a sudden. Yeah, and um, that, that was, you know, little did I realize it, but, but there was amazing things going on in music, and every band and every artist had their own original thing. And uh, little did I know, you know, what, what music would end up being very shortly. You know, because after that, uh, after disco blew up, after Saturday Night Fever came out, like the record labels changed their their strategy, and they they started just only looking for mega hits yeah. rather than artist development, and you know, believing in someone that let them record three albums in anticipation that they would grow. It, it became a, a very big money oriented business and that changed everything. So Phil, what was it like when you actually finally did settle into New York and what was it like when you first went in to do some studio work with Roy Ayers and Ubiquity? Um, actually, before I, um, before I took that flight to Chicago, um, I went down to LA to hang out with the band. And um, there was a club called the Starwood and oh, yeah. my brother was living in LA at the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we went to the Starwood and Greg Fillingaines was playing with Roy. And at that and when I joined Roy, um, Ricky Lawson was a drummer and Byron Miller was a bass player. And Ronnie Drayton was the guitarist. Um, Ronnie Drayton is, um, he's considered a guitar god now. He was playing with the Chambers Brothers when he was 15. He was Edwin Birdsong's original guitarist. And then he joined Roy Ayers Band. And so these are like three 18-year-old superstars, you know, 
and or 18 or 19 year old. The whole band was like 19 year old, years old. And so Ricky was still there. And um, Ricky, Greg Fillingaines, and Byron all went to the same high school in Detroit. And Stevie Wonder took Greg out of high school to join Wonder Love. And then um, Ricky also played with Stevie Wonder when he was 17. Um, and so Roy was trying to steal away um, Greg Fillingaines from Stevie Wonder, but um, he was on retainer. And he, yet, of course, who would you rather play with? At that time, they were recording songs in the key of life. And so I met a young Greg Fillingaines, and then um, Greg had played all, a, a bunch of tracks on Roy's new recordings, and they said, well, come to the studio. We're recording after the show. And so my brother and I went to the studio, and Byron and Ricky and um, Ronnie Drayton kept telling Roy, hey, let Philip play. Hey, let Philip play. And so Roy finally invited me in the studio. And I played um, three, three songs that ended up being The Third Eye, Vibrations, and Lonesome Cowboy, which appeared on um, Ain't Everybody Loves the Sunshine. And then um, Vibrations became the title of the subsequent album. But what I did put out on social media was um, Greg was uncredited on Everybody Loves the Sunshine, but he played quite a lot of the stuff on that album. So we kind of equally split, split up um, the keyboard duties on that album. And so, um, so I went back to Seattle and waited for my plane ticket. But that was a very interesting trip to, to and, and I got to record. And, that, and I was super green. You know, I had recorded with my band, but, you know, we rehearsed those songs. We wrote those songs and rehearsed them. But this was my first professional recording session. And it ended up being Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Wow. Which, which is Roy's iconic album, Little Did We Know at that time. So fast forward to New York. When I got to New York, um, uh, William Allen, Roy's bassist, um, took me in and let me sleep on his couch. And um, William took me to Mikkel's, which was like four blocks away from the apartment. And Mikkel's, if you don't know, it was the club in New York. Everybody played there. Um, first thing I saw was Phyllis Hyman. And then um, David Sanborn. And then Stuff, of course, Stuff was the house band. Richard T, Steve Gadd, Chris Parker, um, Cornell Dupree. Eric Gale, and they were there almost every night. And I would go to Mikkel's practically every night. And then, um, of course, they had McCoy Tyner, Art Blakey, Roy Haynes, all the jazz greats also played at Mikkel's. And um, then I started meeting the local musicians my age. So there was Kenny Kirkland, um, Ray Chu, um, then uh, I became acquainted with all, all the members of Ashford and Simpson's band who were my age. And they all went to high school together with Marcus Miller, Angela Bofield, Francisco Centeno, Charlie Drayton. They were all in high school together. And so um, I met Charlie, his father used to bring him out, and his teacher was Steve Gadd. But Charlie was 10 at that time. And uh, so I met a lot of musicians my age 
and started to interact with them. And at the same time, um, Roy was recording constantly. So we would come off the road and we would go into the electric lady and just record tracks, like three or four, five or six songs a day. And uh, and we'd be in there days and days and days. And what was what was Roy like in the studio? Oh, he would just make he would think of something on the street or at his house, and then he would come in and just show it to you. So if you needed a chart, somebody would write a chart. But a lot of times we would just, he was kind of like James Brown. He would sing the part to you or let you make up a part. And Edwin Bird's song was there. And, and Bird would come in with a tune and he would play piano and Roy would play another keyboard and I'd play another keyboard. And then, um, Sometimes he would bring in Chuck Anthony to play rhythm. Um, sometimes Chuck Rainey would play bass. Most of the time, um, William Allen would play bass because William was a very prolific writer. He wrote a lot of, a lot of songs for Roy. Um, Time and Space, A Tear to a Smile, like a lot of the more genius sounding songs were written by William Allen. And um, and William was my roommate. And so he taught me quite a lot about arranging. And he was also Mongo Santa Maria's arranger. And so he took me to Mongo's gigs. And I met Mongo's manager and pianist. And Mongo's pianist became my teacher, informal uh, piano teacher. So it was a really rich time. And also, um, you know, the bottom line was there and everybody was playing at the bottom line. The Brecker brothers, George Duke, um, everybody. So the, and in town, like, you know, you could see Dexter Gordon or Kenny Barron or um, McCoy Tyner, Keith Jarrett, Toots Thielmans, Miles, you know, everybody was, you'd look in the Village Voice and there'd be like seven pages of stuff going on in clubs. And uh, so it was quite a rich time in, in New York City at that time. And um, it was cheap. Like my rent was like 200 bucks. And I was living on Central Park West. Did, so, you, did you ever, you had a roommate or you had roommates or just? Uh, I was, uh, William Allen was hosting me. Oh, I was yeah. sleeping on his couch. But I ended up, uh, he picked me out and said, go get your own place. You got money, you know. So I moved in two floors down. Um, and that was my first apartment. And unbelievable the atmosphere and environment that you found yourself in. So you were just soaking stuff up like a sponge, I'm guessing, right? Yes. Yes, I was. And, you know, um, I was going to jam sessions. I was getting invited to play with, you know, with different people. Um, Dennis Davis, who, who was Roy's drummer, but he was playing with David Bowie. And at that time, um, Carlos Alomar was in Bowie's band. My brother-in-law, um, who, who would later become my brother-in-law, George Murray. David Sanborn was in that band. Um, Luther Vandross was in that band. Um, so this, this was all the periphery of, of what was going on and um, I started, you know, jamming around town. Um, I met Delmar Brown, who was playing with um, uh, Pat Martino and Kenwood Denard. They were both playing with Pat Martino and we all became friends. Um, JT Lewis, who, um, who went, he was playing with Bobby Humphrey at the time. Then he went on to play with Stanley Turrentine. Then he went on to play with 
Sting, you know, you know all these people, Omar Hakim, Howard King, um, so many people, all George Benson's um, sidemen, Ronnie Foster, um, George Adalto, that I met Onaji Allen Gums, and these guys would come over to my house and show me stuff. Justo Amario, who they called a Latin Coltrane, um, he used to come in and sleep over at my house. So it was, yeah, it was totally rich atmosphere. Um, you, you mentioned uh, Ashford and Simpson, and I see on your credits you actually appeared on their Send It album. Is that correct? Yes, and I was still with Roy at the time. Um, we had done a series of double billings, and they noticed me, and they liked what I did, and so they called me in to, to play on Send It. And uh, it was just a little, a little part, just a Moog synthesizer part. Um, but um, they were so warm, and Valerie invited me over to her house uh, so I could play her my songs. And she gave me advice because I didn't write melodies. I was just writing tracks. And she was like, finish your songs and then um, – Learn how to read, and if you learn how to read, I'll get you. I'll get you a bunch of work, because she was a, a big studio contractor back then, and um, she she had taken Ray Chu under her arm. Ray Chu is a genius, anyway, a prodigy. Um, and Ray and I became friends, and it, it was like these guys who had grown up in New York. They had mentors like Billy Taylor. You know, um, Milt Jackson, you know, people like that would go to their high schools and teach them. So these guys were like, in my mind, they were miles ahead of me. And the thing that was different about me is I was from the West Coast. So my flavor was totally about Sly and the Family Stone, Graham Central Station, Buddy Miles, um, War. You know, I was a West Coast guy, so my thing was different. So that that was the difference between them and me. They were playing like sophisticated um, gospel show tunes. You know, they're totally at home uh, with accompanying singers, um, church, straight-ahead jazz. You know, they, that was all the things um, – that I was not familiar with, but they were, but I had like the funk, the the West Coast thing, you know, the B3, the Clavinet, the Rhodes. And so, so I was accepted, even though I felt kind of like a, a little ant next to these guys my same age. So what happened was, um, Roy pissed me off, and um, I'll, I'll say what happened. I'm sure he'll understand by now because it, we're, we're great friends, and he's coming here Friday, actually. Oh, nice. So I he had called me in to do a mini Mook solo, right, on this track, that, that slamming track, funk track, and I played the mini Mook solo of Doom. And so everybody was like, man, woo, that was the baddest solo in the world. Man, that's people are going to freak out when they hear this. And so I was all happy, you know. So that, that next weekend, we opened up for Santana at the Capitol Center. And Santana invited us all up on stage. And so for his encore, which he used to always invite the opening act on stage. And so um, Tom Coster just stepped out of the way and said, go ahead. And so they played this medley that had like jingle and soul sacrifice and evil ways. And I knew every part to every song because I, I was, you know, that was my heritage. 
and then so I was like high, you know, emotionally high. And I went in the dressing room and I said, Oh man, Roy, that was so amazing. And Roy said, Guess what? I erased your solo. This he he liked to mess with people's brains sometimes. You know? Yeah, so that was kind of par for the course. Yeah. So you know that the there was a thing among jazz musicians that you had to demonstrate that you're crazy. <laughs> From Miles that, Davis on down, right? Yes. Yes. Art yeah. Blakey, Freddie Hubbard, you know, there's this one side of you to keep people from trying to like take advantage of you or be too close to you. You had this side of you that's like, I'm crazy. And so it, that would come out every now and then. James Brown too, yeah. And so that was probably like, don't get too cocky or I'm the star here. And so, you know, he, he kind of crushed, crushed my bubble. And so that following week, um, Ashford and Simpson offered me their job. And so the following weekend, I, I walked into the dressing room after the show and I said, hey, Roy, guess what? I quit. And then he said, okay. And then so I joined Ashford and Simpson's band. And what year was that approximately? Late 77, maybe early 78, probably probably 78. And so um, that opened up a whole new world to me because they were all studio musicians and I was a road dog. And so I learned how to discipline myself to to walk in and do something rather than being in it, you know, cause we were, we were a group of Roy Ayers Ubiquity. And so we were, it was kind of like this chemistry thing happening, you know, that was set orbiting around Roy. And also the players in Roy's group were always excellent. Like Bernard Purdy was there for a year. Dennis Davis, ex super excellent drummer. Who all he played on Stevie Wonder's um, "Hotter Than July," and he also played on "Fame." Um, David Bowie. So Dennis Davis was a legendary drummer. Steve Cobb. Um, so there were always like superstars in in Roy's band who went on to, you know, Ricky Lawson went on to play with Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Steve Dan, Byron Miller played with George Duke, Luther Vandross, the Crusaders, you know, Roy's band was a launching pad for, for musicians. So um, Ashton and Simpson would only go out on the weekends and the musicians would be in the studios all week. And so I got my first taste of doing jingles and studio sessions um, through through that connection and also meeting all the great studio musicians. Did, did, that, did, did that tend to pay better doing the studio rather than the uh, live stuff? Um, you know, those sessions were not that much, but if you did the jingles, you would get residuals. <clears throat> So the guys who were doing all the jingles, they go to the union and pick up the, the big fat pile of checks. Um, I was never the the first call studio musician because because um, my reading was poor. But I did get my share. You know, I played on quite a few records, um, and. Um, you know, there was there was quite enough stuff to, to go around. And also I started playing with um, other bands too. Um, I started playing with Angie Bofield. Um, I did some gigs with um, um, Roberta Flack, Phyllis Hyman. And then I got the call to um, 
to play with Patti LaBelle. And so um, that was in Philly. So I, I spent time in Philadelphia, got to know all the Philadelphia musicians who were playing with, you know, Billy Paul, Teddy Pendergrass, um, Harold Mellon, Blue Notes, the OJs, um, Patti LaBelle, of course, Dexter Wansel, you know. So I started doing some sessions at Philly International. I, I played on some OJs, Patti LaBelle, um, some stylistics. Um, and so Uh, I did a, a couple tours with Patti LaBelle, and that was amazing in in itself, you know, playing with her right after she left LaBelle. 